Come in, come in everyone. Yes, you've made it. You're not late, don't worry. You've just caught the latest episode of the Nasty Pasty podcast, and it's our 50th episode. Yeah, you heard right. You poor saps have been listening to me drone on about horror films for that long. We've got more than 50 episodes out by now, of course, but this is our official number 50 episode. If you're tuning in, thanks for making it this far, and allow me the satisfaction of boring you again with what this podcast is actually talking about. Imagine a land where the government took control of its populace by limiting access to filmed material, declaring it unfit for the population to consume, and promptly banning it and then burning it. Now, I'm not talking about Nazi Germany, and I'm not even talking about George Orwell's 1984. Well, actually, possibly, no. I'm talking about 1980s Britain, the United Kingdom, good old blighty, or if we want to stick with today's divisive rhetoric, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Some bright spark in that era, named Peter Chippendale, produced a review of the burgeoning video trade in Manchester, where he felt personally affronted by the wealth of material available, especially in the horror category, which he branded as video nasties. As the advertisements got more salacious and the VHS covers got further provocative, old biddy Mary Whitehouse suddenly snapped and screamed, Think of the children! She's got tabloids whipped up into a frenzy about the danger of our children we're in from these so-called video nasties. And one of these newspapers, the Daily Mail, ran a campaign to ban the sadist videos. This is the same newspaper that said there's abortion hope after gay genes found in a headline, as well as says their sensational claim that there's just one cannabis joint that brings on schizophrenia. Yeah, they're scum. So too were the MPs of the time, like Margaret Thatcher and Graham Bright, who instead of actually tackling their own mistakes at running the country, joined in the rhetoric and blamed all of the country's woes on video nasties, which led to a legitimate law put into place that outlawed any video which lacked a governing body's certificate on it. It was known as the Video Recordings Act 1984, which brings us full circle into Orwellian territory. I wish it was a joke, but it's not. Of course, many years later, I come along and discover all this, becoming rather outraged myself and watching as much of the offensive material as I can. I haven't turned into a rapist or a murderer, so something's going on, surely. I mean, why haven't I transmogrified into a cannibalistic mutilator after having viewed these films? To highlight the hypocrisy of their actions even further, this podcast looks at films from the same era as the Nasties and compares their levels of violence, sex and gore to that of the Nasties to explore why certain ideas were banned whilst others were not. Last week we covered Lucio Fulci's half of the so-called Houses of Doom series. As explained then, they were a collection of four movies set around the theme of a haunted house which were to air on Italian cable TV in the late 80s, but they were considered too explicit and violent for such a purpose and were relegated to -to direct-to-video releases. Today we're focusing on the other half directed by Umberto Lenzi, 1989's House of Lost Souls and House of Witchcraft. Because of Lenzi's involvement in the series, it does throw a little confusion into the works as he had directed a very similar film the year prior called Ghost House, which we've covered a long time ago. Ghost House is so similar that even I thought it was a TV movie from the same series, even though it wasn't. We also covered a film called Witchcraft, or Witchery, in the same episode, which was also known as Ghost House 2. 
After the Houses of Doom films were released, Lindsay's two films, House of Lost Souls and House of Witchcraft, were released as Ghost House 3 and Ghost House 4 in several European regions, further confusing the two film series with one another. In the same way that the Americans have bundled together loads of undead-related films as unofficial sequels to zombie flesh-eaters, the Germans and the Italians mixed up these films to make up their own Ghost House series. Unfortunately, though, these two films we're covering today are not officially Ghost House movies, but if you really like, you could consider them unofficial ones, especially as they all, with the exception of Witchery, share Umberto Lenzi as the director. With that little sidetrack over, let's get into the first example that we have, The House of Lost Souls. A girl called Carla has a strange vision involving tarantulas, strange people attacking inanimate objects, and a large building before Kevin, her boyfriend, arrives to console her. The next day, Carla and Kevin travel to a petrol station and cafe to refuel their trip home from their geology project, accompanied by their other friends, Mary, Guido, Carla's older brother Massimo, and younger brother Gianluca. Meeting a news reporter called Daria inside the cafe, the group discover that the area was subject to major landslides the night previous, and sure enough, when they carry on on the road, they're stopped by just such a landslide. Deciding to crash somewhere local for the night, they come across the Hermit Hotel, which is clearly abandoned and closed. About to leave for another place, a light suddenly flickers on, and a man appears at the door, whom they beg for a bed to stay the night. Without saying a word, the man allows the group in and leaves them keys to three rooms, and just leaves silently. Though a little weirded out, the group head to their respective rooms, with John Luca noticing a calendar in the room dated 1969, 20 years earlier, whilst Carla finds a huge layer of dust over everything. 
As they all settle down to go to sleep, Carla remains awake due to hearing strange noises downstairs. Heading into the basement, she's suddenly surprised by a TV switching on, despite not being plugged in. And it shows a mother and her child being murdered by a man with an axe. Kevin, Massimo and Guido all run downstairs upon hearing her screams and try to quell her fears. Meanwhile in Guido's room, Mary returns from the bathroom to find him missing and heads downstairs to find him, only to be distracted by a light in the kitchen. As she nears the source of the light, a kitchen freezer, someone pushes her inside where she finds the hung-up corpses of a man and woman and discovers that she is trapped inside. Gianluca wakes up to blood dripping onto his bed from a chandelier, which turns into three tarantulas that head slowly towards him. He passes out from fear after screaming, causing Carla and Massimo to resuscitate him, and Mary is then rescued from the freezer by Guido. Wondering exactly what is wrong with the place, the group subsequently discover that the phones are all broken, and the kitchen is incredibly derelict, covered in spiders' webs and dust, as are all the bedrooms, except for the three that they occupy. Looking outside, Kevin finds a blood spatter which is fresh, and also a Buddha medallion. Deciding to just leave the place, the group assemble outside when Kevin informs them that the roads are still blocked. He, Massimo and Gianluca head outside and head to the village to try and find an alternative way around, only for Gianluca to change his mind when he wants to head back to listen to the radio. Guido chops wood to keep the hotel warm, whilst Carla and Mary await Kevin to return by staying in the car. Gianluca returns unbeknownst to the trio and runs to the top floor after spotting a mysterious boy that was in the TV before in the window. Meeting with the boy, Gianluca notices that he's crying, just before a washing machine billows out smoke causing the boy to disappear. The machine opens its door and advances on Gianluca with such force that his head is ripped from his body. In town, Kevin and Massimo find a different route from the police chief and meet with Daria again. Kevin asks her about the hotel and finds that it was abandoned 20 years ago when the proprietor murdered his hotel guests and then committed suicide when he was caught. Daria helps Kevin access the town's newspaper archive where he discovers that the man that let them into the hotel was not the proprietor but one of his victims who was killed, as is the mysterious young boy who lured John Luca. Back at the hotel, Guido gets a fire started and Carla goes inside to enjoy it, only to have another vision of a Buddhist monk being killed outside by the old proprietor. Guido, on the other hand, begins to play music, just as Mary outside encounters the man who let them in the previous night, this time brandishing a knife and attacking her. Mary runs through the hotel's basement and ends up on the first floor, approached by the dead Buddhist monk. Making her way into Carla and John Lucas' room, she notices that the shower is on and opens the curtain, only to see another of the dead victims, the mother from the TV, who then stabs her in the chest with scissors. After slumping to the ground, the old man enters the room and kills Mary by decapitating her with a knife. Kevin and Massimo discover that the victims' heads were never recovered, just as Guido leaves the house to find Mary. Carla finds her headless body in her bedroom, causing her and Guido to try and escape in the car. When it fails to start, Guido is lured back into the house by the little boy and follows him into the basement where he steps into a bear trap. Carla tries to help him, but fails to remove the trap and as a result heads out to get help, though she's forced to hide in a closet when the many ghosts pursue her. In the basement, Guido is killed when a chainsaw suddenly roars into life and moves towards him, severing his head. Night falls and Carla reunites with Kevin and Massimo as they return to the house. 
Discovering that Gianluca is not with them, she and Massimo mount a search for him as Kevin discovers Guido's severed head in the basement. Massimo discovers Gianluca dead in the attic, and the group suddenly find that the hotel's exits have all been inexplicably concreted over, trapping them inside. Daria and her cameraman swing by the hotel to check on the group, but they find the place boarded up and leave straight away. Using a metal detector, Kevin decides to seek out the missing heads to hopefully quell the spirit's anger. He locates a potential spot in the basement, but as he pickaxes through the wall, uncovering a metal plate, the spirits appear again, causing the building to begin collapsing and to surge with energy. Massimo rescues Carla from behind a flaming pipe, while Kevin removes the plate, revealing all of the victims' heads. The spirits begin to attack Carla and Massimo, forcing them to hide in the kitchen. Massimo goes to check a dumbwaiter to try and find a way out, and is instantly decapitated by the contraption, leaving Carla alone to face the oncoming spirits. Just as they reach her, Kevin douses the heads in flames, causing them to instantly vanish. Months later, Carla is recuperating in a mental hospital, and is visited by Kevin, who says that she will soon be well enough to leave. Just as they hold hands, the little boy is seen in the background, staring at the couple. The House of Lost Souls is a very mixed bag of tricks, but it's one that's ultimately fun to experience in spite of its issues, of which there are more than a few. Lindsay gives us what is ultimately a take on his previous outing, 1988's Ghost House, and just tweaks the formula a little bit. Like Ghost House, the action is set at a haunted house, or in this case a hotel, which is inhabited by vengeful spirits caused by a botched burial service when they were unceremoniously murdered around 20 years ago. Unlike Ghost House, where the catalyst is a creepy doll which was stolen from a dead person, it's now due to several victims being decapitated and their heads unreturned with their bodies for the funeral. 
This understandably pisses them off, and they return to our delight to seek out victims whom they return the favour of liberating them from their heads in grim fashion. Lindsay's film here certainly wouldn't win any points for originality, but the proceedings are so daft and funny that you can't help but be entertained. What works in favour of the film is its fervent desire to be outrageous. Loads of the film's plot points are massively contrived and silly, but they're handled with such a devil-may-care attitude that any critical viewpoints on them simply fail. It's set up rather like a slasher film, with a wide variety of victims dispatched in various ways that end up with their heads being lost. Part of the outrageousness are these very victims, who come in a wide range of variants. Our main girl, Carla, is a rather contrary character. She holds a rather unique power of being able to see visions of the past, which you'd think would at least give her an edge to be able to combat or solve the issues of the ghosts around. As the film started, I thought I was in for a kind of carry phenomena, or Friday the 13th Part 7 type of deal, where a psychic protagonist would face off against a powerful adversary. Alas, it seemed to be purely for show, as Carla is rather the damsel of the film, being reduced to a screaming doormat whenever she's confronted with either her visions or the ghosts themselves. She's pretty much reliant on the male characters of the film, namely her boyfriend Kevin, to be helped out of situations, with only the one occasion of being able to hide from one of her pursuers by ducking into a cupboard. This one and only instance, however, is marred by the fact that she not only collapses in utter defeat once outside, but she stays around the house until Kevin and Massimo come back, seemingly incapable of running away from the danger and getting help, as she tells Guido. The conclusion's events of her being relegated to a mental asylum afterwards, with Kevin visiting her, is only symptomatic of the idea that without him, she's helpless. Think of Shelley Duvall from The Shining, and you'll get roughly the strength of Carla as a central character. Conversely, Kevin is quite chivalrous and a heroic male lead, who has no qualms about getting his hands dirty, and he's ultimately the saviour of the story by locating and destroying the victims' heads. I could easily go into the gender politics of this film, but the fact of the matter is, despite Kevin being much more capable, every character in this film acts like a moron, and they're all equally as useless as each other. While in a more competent film this might be an annoyance, it works in the favour of this film, as the plot is already so silly, it could only really carry on because of each character's stupidity. On the topic of the genders, however, there is the obligatory Italian scene of a woman being slapped out of her hysteria by a male character, in this case Carla by her boyfriend Kevin. Another prime example of Kevin's ridiculousness is his line to Carla. The doctors gave you a reasonable explanation. They said you have psychic powers, you're a medium. Mike George dropped at this point. I mean, that's a reasonable explanation. Out of the other characters, Mary is also notable for being just as weak-willed as Carla, though, in her case, I do feel it's a little more justified as she gets much more of the Shelley Duval treatment, being constantly harassed by the ghosts throughout the film and practically being frozen almost to death early on in the film. One thing I was impressed by, however, was her moment of spotting a lurking ghost behind a corner before she passes it. So often in these films, characters are so ignorant of their own perceptions. But again, like Carla, she dashed my hopes nigh instantly by halting her escape for a few moments by bending forward and screaming. I mean, can't people flee and scream at the same time? The only female character with any kind of strength that I saw was Daria, who at least acts benevolently towards the characters and helps them find out the history of the hotel. Even the gesture of swinging by the hotel to check on them was very admirable, 
but I did get frustrated when this led nowhere at all. I was at least expecting her to try and attempt entry, or at least try to make contact with them, and then leave to get help. You never see her again after this point either, so maybe it's a personal thing, but I felt that maybe we should have had another scene with her, just so that the audience could at least see them interact one last time. Another example of character silliness is in Guido. With only a love of awful 80s dance music to distinguish him from the rest, Guido has a moment of stupidity when a chainsaw heads towards him, and he doesn't even think to even attempt to move his head out the way. Sure, it may have grazed him anyway, but you'd at least try to move out the way. Massimo is probably the flattest of the characters, despite him supposedly being the project leader of this team of geologists, and he has little to distinguish him from a bland victim. His death, of course, is quite humorous, simply because it just comes out of nowhere. The biggest standout character for me, though, not including the ghosts themselves, is little John Luca, who has not only some of the most memorable lines and dubbing in the film, but the child actor just looks like he's having a really, really fun time with his part. Coupled with the fact that he suffers tarantulas crawling on his bed, and has one of the more mean-spirited scenes in which he's killed, really makes him memorable long after the film is finished. The large group of ghosts, however, do make for a very interesting bunch, with a couple who've been hung, a mother and her son, an old man in a suit, and a Buddhist monk of all things, to total six ghosts altogether. The Buddhist monk is probably the most memorable due to a suitably hammy performance from the actor, with a very wide, penetrating stare that either disturbs you, or just makes you chuckle. Regardless, the cast do seem on the whole to be taking the silliness of the script with good cheer, and they all look like they had a ball with it, which does really rub off on the audience. While I've mentioned that the plot is very unoriginal, Lindsay has made references to other haunted house movies, specifically Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. As mentioned previously, the two female characters seem to be reading from the same cue cards as Shelley Duvall's terrorised wife in that film, and a lot of the film's plot does seem to be direct lift from Kubrick's example. Carla is rather like the young Danny, having an ability to sense the supernatural, and the film's settings are both at a hotel with a reputation for paranormal happenings. The hotel proprietor who murdered his guests is visually similar to Jack Nicholson's axe-wielding madman, and the moment where Mary is locked in a freezer by the ghosts is reminiscent of Nicholson's character suffering the same, as well as his death by freezing in the snow outside in the film's ending. Mary's ultimate demise is caused when she goes into a bathroom and opens the shower, rather like the creepy moment when Jack goes into the bathroom of room 237 and finds a naked rotting ghost, while the scene of John Luca being terrorised by tarantulas is preluded by blood dripping from one of the hotel's chandeliers. A small nod to the gushing blood waves emanating from the Overlook Hotel's elevators. Even the scene of John Luca being lured by the ghost child has echoes of the sinister twins meeting Danny in Kubrick's film, but part of this inspiration does seem to have been split to the hanging ghost couple, who appear mostly together as one unit. Some of the film's elements, however, are cherry-picked instead from Lindsay's ghost house, including the emphasis on filming shenanigans in the basement, the presence of a supernatural washing machine, yes, this does happen, a surprise guillotine moment, and a scene where the characters travel to a graveyard building to gain insight into their ghostly adversaries. The similarly dilapidated state of the place is also similar to Lindsay's ghost house, with the creepy hermit hotel looking the part in many ways. It's cold-looking, it's desolate, and isolated in almost every way, which does help the film's tone exponentially. What isn't carried over from his previous film, however, are the kills, 
which are all decapitations, though on a first watch I didn't actually realise this. Lindsay manages to take the decapitation theme and vary them to such a large degree that they all feel fresh and unique. It also helps the film that they're all suitably graphic too. One of the most memorable, and simultaneously the most bizarre, is the quite mean-spirited death of John Luca. Yeah, it breaks the taboo of killing a child in another what-the-fuck moment of cinema. A possessed washing machine splutters into life and heads for the boy, hitting him with such force that his head is detached from his shoulders and then falling into the spinning drum. It's an image that we've seen in a bit of a softer light in Ghost House, but here it's much punchier and effective due to the victim being a small boy. Mary's death also takes a cue from Fulci's house by the cemetery, being stabbed by scissors, a la the opening murder of that film, before suffering a beheading via a kitchen knife. It's even more fun than that, however, as Mary's head then subsequently gets moved around by the spirits in a kind of rigged game of hide-and-seek with the flustered Carla. Guido has his head ripped off with a possessed chainsaw, in a slight nod to the evil dead, whilst Massimo has his head removed when he looks into a dumbwaiter, with an inexplicable guillotine falling on top of him, another death that's been lifted from Ghost House. This last example, though, is very humorous for its sudden, unpredictable nature, and it was very hard not to giggle at the suddenness of it. There's a lot to like about The House of Lost Souls. Sure, it's silly, it's inept, it's typically campy for a dubbed Italian film, but it's just having a really raucous time of it. It's hard to dislike a film that just accepts that it's probably no good and just gets on with it, giving a really good effort while it's here. The ending is also nothing short of what I'd expect from this sort of film, a bit of a silly twist that serves only to give us the expected horror film ending. It's grisly, it's funny, it's paced well, and it has a kid getting his head eaten by a washing machine. I mean, come on, what more is there to like? Main girl Carla was played by Stefania Orsola Garello, who'd have smaller roles in 2002's Heaven and 2004's King Arthur. Joseph Allen Johnson played the dotaragonist Kevin, and he'd been in previously the slasher films Slumber Party Massacre and Iced. Massimo was played by Matteo Gazzolo, who'd later pop up in 1992's Body Puzzle, while the ghostly Buddhist monk was played by Japanese actor Hal Yamanouchi, who's been in a whole wealth of films in character roles, like the video nasty The Last Hunter, 2020 Texas Gladiators, 2019 After the Fall of New York, Endgame, Phantom of Death, etc. Much later in the noughties, he'd star in The Life Aquatic with Steve Sissou, The Wolverine, and also Zoolander 2. Lucia Colo, who played Daria, didn't really have any other credits of note, but she was notably a real-life Italian TV presenter, so she wasn't completely absent from TV appearances. The old man's ghost, whom the kids mistake for the proprietor, was a British actor, Charles Baromel, who prominently appeared in the video nasty Absurd from Joe D'Amato. He also had appearances in Caligula the Untold Story and Ator the Invincible, whilst on the side he did some English dubbing work for some Italian exploitation films like Contraband, which we covered a few weeks ago, as well as Don't Torture a Duckling, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, Death Dealers, Big Racket, uh, The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, and the video nasty The Beast in Heat. Benny Cardoza, who played the lady ghost hung up in the freezer, had also been in Caged Women and Jess Franco's Vampiros Lesbos, whilst Fortunato Arana, who played the ghost of the murderous proprietor, had appearances in The Bloodstained Shadow, The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, and the original controversial Caligula. 
Finally, the man tending to the cemetery was played by a familiar face from last week, Massimo Sarcielli, who was in the House of Clocks as the shopkeeper. The House of Lost Souls was directed and written by Umberto Lenzi, who passed away just a little over a year ago in 2017. We, of course, have mentioned him previously as we've covered The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, Almost Human and Ghost House. But for video nasty enthusiasts, he'd be very familiar too, as he contributed a large number of his films to the two DPP lists, including Cannibal Ferox, The Man from Deep River, or Deep River Savages as it was known, Eaten Alive, and Nightmare City. In regards to the rest of the crew, it's a very similar story to the two Fulci films from last week. The editor Alberto Moriani returns, as does the two producers Massimo Manasse and Marco Grillo Spino. Where this differs is that Lenzi chose his own composer and cinematographer, in a move not unlike Fulci, who employed his trusted Vince Tempera and Sebastio Celeste in their respective jobs. Lenzi opted for Claudio Simonetti for the music, well known in the Italian world as one of the main driving forces of the band Goblin, who composed the music for Argento's Deep Red, Suspiria and Tenebrae, as well as Dawn of the Dead, Cut and Run, Demons, Hands of Steel, Body Count and Opera. The cinematographer that Lenzi chose was Giancarlo Ferrando, who'd worked on All the Colours of the Dark, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only Eye of the Key, Torso, Suspicious Death of a Miner, Video Nasty, Mountain of the Cannibal God, Isle of Mutations, etc. etc. Basically almost everything by Sergio Martino. In a move similarly to Fulci, Lenzi too had his daughter Alessandra Lenzi help out with assistant directorial duties. She'd reprise this role in Troll 2 and Hitcher in the Dark. Like all of the entries in the Houses of Doom series, House of Lost Souls was dropped from its TV broadcast because of the violent scenes in it. It subsequently had a very brief Italian cinematic release before going on to VHS in both Europe and Japan. It didn't really recoup anything significant back, and it's been subsequently distributed in the UK by Vipco, the infamous video nasty releaser of Driller Killer and The Boogeyman. Being released so late in 1989, though, guaranteed that it wasn't even considered during the Nasty Scare, as it had all been done and dusted. The only viable way to find these films in the UK are the pervasive Vipco release, especially as they're now being redistributed by the Beyond Terror DVD label. In true Vipco style, the packaging is just redesigned to look like another label, but it's the same Vipco DVD inside. So that was our first entry. Let's look now at Lenzi's other contribution to the series, The House of Witchcraft.
A man runs through the country, seemingly chased by a group of phantom dogs, and enters an old mansion, where an old witch-like hag is inside the kitchen. After beckoning him forwards, she produces the man's severed head and pops it into her cauldron. The man, named Luke, suddenly wakes inside a hospital complaining of this recurring dream, with his attending nurse Elsa dismissing his concerns. Luke explains to Elsa that his marriage to a woman called Martha is failing, mostly due to her strange interest in the occult. As he's discharged, his wife Martha picks him up and suggests that they try to repair their marriage one last time, and reveals that she's rented a country house for the pair to stay in. On the way there, a pair of hoodlums are driving erratically and almost hit Martha and Luke, only for her to swerve out of their way, resulting in their car crashing and killing them both, which Martha casually dismisses. Finally arriving, Luke is shocked to find that the house is the exact same house from his recurring nightmare. He meets the house's owner, the blind Andrew, who describes the house as harbouring a kind of sorcery about it. Later that night, Luke spots the old hag from his dream, beating a priest to death in the garden with a poker. But when he goes to investigate it, neither the body nor the hag are there. Searching for Martha, he then encounters a blonde woman outside called Sharon, Andrew's niece, who is staying at the house too, just before the pair spy Martha wandering the grounds in her nightwear, sleepwalking. Luke grows ever concerned about the house after seeing a strange black cat and finding a priest's discarded Bible in the garden, and phones Elsa to come over to keep him company. Wandering into another of the house's bedrooms, he discovers a talisman with a cat on it, suddenly unleashing a storm of feathers which wrecks some of the furniture. Outside, Martha drives erratically past Andrew's seeing eye dog, and nearly knocks Sharon down too, arousing Luke's suspicions even further. When Sharon brings Luke to see Andrew's blooming greenhouse, the old man informs them of the house's history, notably when the bones of a centuries-old woman were discovered in the walls, reported to be a witch. Subsequently, Sharon and Luke go into town for supplies, only for Luke to stop off at a church, discovering that the local priest was found dead next to a motorcycle in an apparent accident. Going to show Sharon the dropped Bible in his bedroom, Luke discovers two tarot cards belonging to Martha in its place. Elsa arrives at the hotel with her daughter Deborah and have dinner with the family, though Martha chooses to go to bed instead. In his room, Luke explains to Elsa his suspicions about Martha's intentions, but she dismisses the idea as silly before asking if he is falling for Sharon, which he denies. Deborah invites her boyfriend Stephen over secretly to play Nookie, and once finished, he exits the house and spots Martha sleepwalking just before he's surprised by the old hag who stabs him to death with a pair of gardening shears. Overnight, Andrew has a heart attack when he heard the boy's screams, but he's soothed back to health by Elsa. Luke and Elsa then go looking for Martha and find her asleep in the greenhouse, where all the previously vibrant plants are now dead, giving off a putrid smell of dead bodies, with some of the flowers even bleeding. After finding Stephen's glasses broken in the grounds, Deborah goes looking for him later that night, but only finds Martha sleepwalking again. Once back inside, she spots Stephen somehow standing in the hall, and ends up following him to the basement, where she's suddenly locked in and stabbed to death by the old witch. Luke awakens and finds a bloodied knife in the hallway before going in to see Martha, who is wearing the cat amulet. She chastises him and declares that she hates him before swiping at him, thinking that he's trying to kill her. Elsa wakes up and notices that Deborah's missing, alerting Sharon and Luke to go out and look for her. Each of them takes a different area, but Elsa is the one who finds Deborah's severed head in the kitchen within a boiling pot on the fireplace. 
When the others check, the head has disappeared, and after finding Martha wandering with a bloodied tarot card, Luke locks her in her bedroom and goes outside to search for Deborah with Sharon. Inside, Elsa hears Deborah's voice and goes into the basement, where it's inexplicably snowing. Deborah is there, however, but upon embracing her, Elsa notices that her face is zombified before her fake daughter strangles her. It soon transforms into the witch, who murders Elsa by ramming an ice pick through her chest. Following a trail of bloody cat prints, they soon find Deborah's body with another tarot card in her hand. Checking Martha's room reveals that she's not there, but the black cat is. Deciding to take matters into his own hands, Luke grabs Andrew's seeing eye dog and sets the dog on the cat to kill what he believes is his wife, transformed into the cat. Going back into the room reveals the dog has indeed killed Martha, who now appears human. Just as a gunshot rings out, Andrew having committed suicide at the tragic events. The next day, the police arrive to take the bodies and discover a letter in Andrew's handwriting confessing to all the murders, which Luke knows to be false, though he cannot say so as he was involved in Martha's death. He and Sharon drive away from the house and end up making love when they arrive at a hotel. Falling asleep afterwards, Luke has the same recurring nightmare again of the witch boiling his head in the cauldron and wakes suddenly in the morning to find Sharon missing. A hotel attendant tells Luke of her leaving hours before in a hurry and Luke drives after her, surmising that she's returned to the house. Just as he's about to reach there, the car breaks down just as several dogs run past barking loudly. He's forced to make his way to the house on foot and when he enters the kitchen, the hag is there at the cauldron only to reveal her true form as Sharon. She explains that her ancestor was the witch who was buried in the walls and that her uncle suspected her of the crimes, so she compelled him to write the note and kill himself. She simply transfigured Martha into a cat and planted hints that she was the witch whilst killing all the others. She brands Luke a fool just as a skeletal figure in a robe decapitates him with a scythe, allowing Sharon to pick up the head and plop it into the cauldron, cackling maniacally, as the film ends.
When we covered Fulci's House of Clocks and Sweet House of Horrors, I'd summarised by saying that House of Clocks was infinitely the better one of the two, with Sweet House of Horrors being a lot less effective. Lenzi has pretty much mirrored the same scenario, with the House of Lost Souls being better than House of Witchcraft. I have to stress though that Sweet House of Horrors is still inferior to Lenzi's less successful entry. House of Witchcraft doesn't reach the same fun levels as Lost Souls, but it's nowhere near the mismatched feel of Fulci's lesser film, and while it doesn't quite reach the better House of Lost Souls, House of Witchcraft is surprisingly very rich and varied for what it initially seemed to be. Choosing to eschew the emphasis on gruesomeness and gore, House of Witchcraft chooses to instead focus on the subtle horrors of a house with a witch's legend attached to it. That's not to say that it doesn't have some bloody moments, because it does, but they're not as heavily emphasised, especially in the film's first half. The film does change tactic a little halfway through, but let's start from the beginning. The opening nightmare is a great opener, with a man being drawn towards a house where a witch inside cooks his severed head in a cauldron. The woman playing the witch, too, is also very effective, despite looking a little stereotypical as witches go. We then get introduced to our first characters, Luke and Elsa. The Italian dubbing in this scene does let it down, in terms of really unnatural and clunky dialogue, like something that you'd hear in Troll 2. I mean, the conversation couldn't sound more exposition-heavy, with Luke establishing Elsa as his brother's wife and mother to his niece within the same sentence only for Elsa to explain that he's also dead in response. It certainly has that campy, detached nature as a result, but hey, I can dig that, so all I did was raise a smile and it commenced a bit of a rolling of the eyes. This is just one of many bizarre moments in the film, but more on that later. Let's talk about Luke, who's a nice bit of eye candy for the most part, but little else. He's not much of a character that we can get behind, really, as he feels quite impressionable and milk toast most of the time. He doesn't really do anything that distinctive, unless it's a response to the other characters who seem to bring out anything worth seeing in him. Like Harry Potter, he feels a bit more like a floater who's a slave to fate and inevitability, which does become rather prominent in the film's conclusion. The other character of note is Martha, an ice-cold queen if ever there was one. Not many characters could witness a fatal car crash and, unmoved, carry on driving afterwards. She also drives recklessly herself, nearly running a dog and Sharon over, as well as sleepwalking at night in a flowing nightgown, with a facial expression rather like that of a vegetarian in a slaughterhouse. She's certainly cold and mysterious, but she didn't really fool me. I've seen enough of these films to know that despite being quite icy, the painting of her as a red herring was far too colourful to not notice, shall we say. Luke's only consistent characteristic is his behaviour towards his wife, He's rather dismissive and unsupportive of her, and sometimes quite spiteful. She does sleepwalk and she's a bit irritable, but he did marry her and he now seemingly chooses to be ignorant of her rather than solve their marriage issues. It's notable how he immediately assumes that Martha is the cause of all the problems, forming connections and links with the goings-on, and even going so far as to lock her in a room when he wholeheartedly suspects her of being a witch. When it seems that she is at least able to transform into a black cat... He wastes no time whatsoever in savaging her to death via Andrew's dog. Whatever happened to in sickness and in health? Remembering the bit about till death do us part though, Luke then promptly does the horizontal mambo with Sharon. Not exactly endearing, is he? 
Sharon, on the other hand, is very endearing as a character. She's vibrant compared to Martha with warmth and charm, and she's quite, quite pretty as well. It has most of us, really, under her spell. She genuinely seems to care about the situation unfolding in her house, but of course, the two things I've just mentioned are, of course, on point. The reveal of her identity as that of the witch was really not that surprising. That's not necessarily because of any weakness in her characterization or obviousness, it's just that by the time of the reveal, there's literally no one else that the witch could possibly be. Elsa is introduced as kind of a voice of reason, which is admirable considering she could have been descaling a kettle at home rather than coming out to the country to a witchy mansion. She's also not stupid, being a doctor and having the perception to spot Luke's growing feelings for Sharon. Her performance is a bit shaky though. She doesn't really react nearly as traumatically as she should upon discovering her daughter's head bubbling in a pot. And considering her intelligence and intuition, she falls for the witch's trick of appearing as her daughter, which of course gets her killed. Andrew the blind guy with a seeing eye dog is there almost in a nod to Suspiria, which has similar themes of witchcraft and supernatural goings on, while the daughter Deborah and her boyfriend Stephen are seemingly introduced in a Friday the 13th style fashion, just to be offed by the witch. They're not really remarkable otherwise, except that Deborah reads comic books, which was a little out of the blue. That last mention of Friday the 13th is a little bit poignant, as the last half of the film does become a bit more of a fast-paced slasher film, with each victim being killed by the witch sequentially. The first half is all about laying suspicions and building the atmosphere, with only the killing of the priest being any semblance of a slasher that it would become. This first act too does have some really good imagery, some of which, like Lost Souls, is taken from Ghost House, most notably a sequence where Luke unleashes a storm of feathers when he grabs an amulet. Another really good image, though, that I found was the flowers in the conservatory bleeding and emanating a foul smell. Andrew mentions earlier that flowers are sensitive to good and bad vibes, which certainly stretches facts a smidge, but the sequence does work to add to the creepy atmosphere going on. It is almost a dreamlike image, too, just as the sequence of Elsa's death has the basement suffering a snowstorm, another really visually interesting design choice. The film as a whole does have this vaguely dreamlike, sometimes nightmarish feel to it, something that I feel is purposeful in a slight nod to Argento's Suspiria, but it tackles it in a different way than prismatic hues and operatic levels of violence. The phantasmagorical nature of the plot and images, combined with Luke's flimsy and flat attempts at actually doing something about it, do combine together to make the ending much more potent. His nightmare, it seems, was a premonition of his impending death at the hands of Sharon, who delights in telling him that he's a fool who has played into her hands perfectly. This fatalistic and inevitable nature of the film do suggest that the whole film has been the witch's enthralling spell, manipulating her pawns appropriately so that it can lead to the moment where she can kill Luke in the way that she wants to. I've still got no idea why she actually wants to achieve this, but it's rather interesting all the same. True, the film is riddled with the clichés like black cats, magic talismans and bubbling cauldrons, but it somehow gels together in a rather interesting way. The film does pick up somewhat though in the second half, mostly because the events spiral out of control quickly when the hag decides to up her body count. After the unnamed priest gets a poker to the face, Stephen is stabbed to death with gardening shears, Deborah's stabbed to death with a kitchen knife, and finally Elsa is strangled and then skewered with an ice pick. They weren't exactly the bloodiest of kills, of course, but they weren't exactly Halloween-style either, with no plasma being splashed about. 
True to his character, Luke gets decapitated by a Grim Reaper-style revenant, and he hardly puts up a fight before his head is sliced off with a scythe. It felt as natural an ending as it could have been. It certainly felt in tone with the rest of it. Compared to Lost Souls, though, witchcraft is not as bloody, and nor is it as humorous, intentional or otherwise. It takes itself a little more seriously than Lenzi's previous effort, but it does genuinely try to generate more of a mystical and subtly creepy tone, which is at least moderately successful due to the frequently bizarre images. As far as witch-related slasher-like potboilers go, you could certainly do worse than this film, and it has enough endearing creepy moments to warrant a watch. Possibly a few re-watches too, which I'd probably definitely do. Luke was played by Andy J. Forrest, who's been in just a few other films like The Kiss of the Cobra and Hunt for the Golden Scorpion. Sonia Petrovna was a French actress who played the role of the very bipolar Martha. She'd previously been in 1973's Ludwig and 1972's Indian Summer. Sharon was played by Italian actress Marina Giulia Cavalli, who played in Antonio Margheriti's Alien from the Deep whilst Swiss actor Paul Muller, who played her uncle Andrew, had been in a bunch of Jess Franco stuff like Vampiros Lesbos, She Killed in Ecstasy, Virgin Among the Living Dead, and Caged Women. Maria Stella Musi, who played Deborah, didn't really do much else in the way of film appearances, but she did provide the Italian dubs for some English-language films, like Scary Movie and Ice Age. The old hag form of The Witch was played by actress Maria Clementina Cumani Quasimodo, Try saying that while drunk. Who was an Italian character actress who'd popped up in all sorts of Italian fare, like All the Colours of the Dark, The Nun and the Devil, Five Women for the Killer, and Caligula. Finally, there was the police inspector who was played uncredited by actor Tom Fellahy, whom we've encountered a few times before on stuff like Salon Kitty, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, and Almost Human. In regards to the crew, it's the same exact story as with Fulci's films. Lenzi utilised the same crew for his second picture, with Claudio Simonetti, Giancarlo Ferrando, Alberto Moriani, Alessandra Lenzi and Giuseppe Ferranti all returning in their respective roles as composer, cinematographer, editor, assistant director and special effects. The only differences were the writers, which, just like Fulci's House of Clocks, features the talents of Cannibal Holocaust writer Gianfranco Clarisi, and Danielle Stropper, who wrote such pictures as Witchery, Killing Birds, and Troll 3. This film was very different in terms of distribution, as it made loads of money and became quite famous as an entry for Lindsay. Not. Sorry folks, but it's the exact same story as the last three films you've heard from me. After being rejected for Italian TV, House of Witchcraft was released in the Italian cinema chains to try and drum up some funds, and when they failed to materialise, the film was exported with its three brothers across Europe and in Japan on VHS. It's really hard to tell whether they made successes enough to garner money to break even, but I doubt it, as the only reliable sources to get the film now are from the cheap-ass Vipco releases that are still floating around. Like the others, this came out far too late to be considered a nasty by the authorities, and it's only linked by the director and the company Vipco both of whom played large parts in the nasty scare. You can find the film today on either some Region 1 US DVDs, or you can seek out the Vipco bootlegs, which are still being redistributed by the Beyond Terror label.
So, that was House of Witchcraft, and it's the last film in the Houses of Doom series. It's also, more importantly, the last film on this milestone 50th episode, so thanks very much to everyone for listening. I never would have believed you if you told me I'd get this far, but here we are, folks. Miracles can happen, and not just at Christmas. Are you a fan of these films? Do you have a favourite? Me, personally, I rank them as House of Clocks first, House of Lost Souls second, House of Witchcraft third, and Sweet House of Horrors fourth. Do you differ? If you do, do get in touch through our Facebook or Twitter page. I do love a good chinwag about the films that I cover. We can do this while we wait for the next episode, coming as normal next Friday. On that episode, we'll be tackling zombies with a twist. Everyone's familiar with zombie movies, of course, but what about those ones that broke the trend in the midst of the Golden Age? We cover two such films, and they are Lucio Fulci's City of the Living Dead and Amando de Osario's Tombs of the Blind Dead. We'll discuss the specifics of why they break the mould next week, but until then, stay out of dodgy houses and don't lose your heads. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.